Hi, welcome to Cave to the Cross Apologetics. I'm Tony. I'm Patrick. And we are working our way through the book, Truth in a Culture of Doubt. That's right. right? And we have gone, uh, we're in the the, uh, the third chapter, actually the kind of the middle of the third chapter, right? And so the book is kind of broken down in these various chapters with claims that uh, Bart Ertman has made, and they are going through these claims and showing, actually refuting these various claims, right? right? And so we have looked at uh, three of the claims in this chapter about are the biblical manuscripts corrupt, right? That's the issue here. And we've looked at three of them. Now we're up to number four. Uh, early, why are the biblical manuscripts corrupt? Well, the claim is, according to Bart Erdman, early Christians did not have the means to copy texts accurately, right? Right? So they didn't have a copy machine or, you know, <laughs> or a printer, right. right? So they couldn't do it. Well, right. It's right? not possible. <laughs> so the 5,300 manuscripts that we have, uh, I, don't, I don't know how, how you come to explain that, but, you know, I'm sure there is. Uh, so uh, first, uh, the handwriting found in the earliest Christian manuscripts indicates that most of the early scribes were professional scribes trained in copying both documentary and literary texts. Mm. So trained, learned people did this. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, these early Christian scribes would have been well-trained for employment by individuals to do such things as copy letters, reproduce formal literary pieces, write letters by taking dictation, and generate administrative documents. These multifunctional scribes were prevalent in the first century. Mm. Why? Because Rome was a, a learned culture. Oh, it, yeah. it, it, oh. it, it did things by courier message and reading things. And uh, yeah, you did have a, a population that still, you know, wasn't, you weren't reaching double digits probably with uh, the, the amount of people who were literate, but uh, you know, Rome got pushed on, on what we do today on paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> the rise and fall of the Roman paper was, uh, was also because of, uh, of the Roman empire was because of paper. <laughs> uh, so uh, one does not have to wonder if the earliest Christians use subscribes in the new Testament, uh, terrorists, uh, is identified as such scribe who's employed by Paul. So uh, he says, I, Tateris, uh, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord, Romans 16, 22. So, so he signs yeah. it. In fact, when when uh, later on in, in so, some of uh, Paul's letters, he says, uh, I write this by my own hand. He signs it because there were people concerned that he was telling them wrong things because he was, you know, challenging them. And like, well, maybe Paul didn't write this. I mean, he's using a scribe for this. And he's like, all right, fine. I'll, yeah. I'll sign this one. It's I guess I've got time. <laughs> yeah. So right there in Romans uh, sixteen twenty two, we see that there was a scribe that was working with Paul to write down what what needed to be what Paul wanted. Right. right? What Paul said. Second, <clears throat> the use of uh, nomia sacra. Uh, nomia sacra. Yeah, yeah. Nomia sacra. This is really interesting. Yeah. 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 So this it means sacred names. Yeah. Nomia sacra. Uh, this uh, abbreviations for common words um, denoting deities such as God or Lord and the uh, the codex suggests that the early uh, church was better organized and more sophisticated in its copying practice than Erdman gives it credit. Yeah. Right? So you have these three particular issues, the nomia sacra, the abbreviations, and then this idea of the codex. Yeah. These are extremely important in mm -hmm. terms of this particular question, right? Yeah, if you study this, th those those words will, will be used. So if you're mm -hmm. looking to get more into it, this is uh, this is kind of your primer for right. It. So the nomia sacra are abbreviations of special words such as uh, Jesus, uh, Christ, Lord, uh, and uh, God in the early Christian documents. Right. right. So they wrote them in abbreviated form. Mm -hmm. as, as well as going abbreviated. Out. Sometimes they would put markings over it, 
and it it shows a, a very um, a significant uh, identity that, especially with um, with Jesus and Christ, when especially in context. So early Christians believed that Jesus was God because of this mm. this uh, identical mark. Or if you've ever been conserved, it's not it's not Xmas, it's Christmas. Well, X is just the 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 uh, Greek the letter, letter, the Greek letter that yeah uh, that that would comic. denote this. So you're using the nomen of sacra if you use Xmas. So <laughs> so just thank the other person when that's when right. they're leaving Christ out of Christmas. Right. That uh, right. as long as they put the X in there, that, that's, that's right. all that matters. That's right. So <laughs> really interesting stuff that this is. Yeah. So it's unclear exactly you know uh, where this practice <laughs> originated, but we do know that nomen of sacra. Uh, were not used as simple abbreviations to save space, which is the primary reason why we use it today, right? right? These words were likely abbreviated to express reverence and devotion. Right. It's kind of like in the Old Testament where they didn't write the the, the name of yeah. God. Yeah, Yahweh. They, yeah. they would they would they would stop. They would wash themselves. They would get out a, a pen specifically to write the the sacred name. They would write it. They would go wash again and continue on. Mm. Pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah. So we have this abbreviation, Nomia Sacra. Right. Uh, that tells us that something uh, organized was going on. Right, right. right. And, and it's not just one person that did it. Yeah. There were a lot of people that yeah. did it. It, yeah. it seemed to be a thing. <laughs> it was a thing. <laughs> it was the first meme, the first Christian meme right there. <clears throat> I'm, I'm sure Dawkins would be, would be proud of us using that. <laughs> so these, these abbreviations are significant because they appear in the earliest manuscripts. Again, early, early, early. Yeah. And are exclusively, exclusive to Christianity. So, oh. so, so they came up, yeah, with yeah, their so own deal, Yeah, so it's not just, deal, the, right? hey, yeah. uh, scribe in the... In the Roman Colosseum that's uh, that's uh, taken down the gladiator names. You can do me a favor and copy this page for me. Mm-hmm. Oh sure, whatever. You know yeah. there'll be ten dollars or wh- <laughs> whatever lira, yeah. dinero, or yeah. something. Yeah. Sure, depending on how much it is. Uh, you know this, this was this was intentionally continued. So uh, this means that early Christian scribes were not simply making things up as they went, but had a degree of organization, of a conscious planning, of uniformity of practice, which we have here, uh, hitherto had a little reason to suspect. Right. So, so. they were they, clearly the, they were organized. The widespread right. use, secondly, the widespread use of the codex in the early church also points to a more formal scribal in, infrastructure um, than is assumed by Erdman, right? So uh, in the early days of Christianity, most in the Greco-Roman um, world were using the scroll as a way to communicate and write, right? Which was made from papyrus and parchment, right? right? So if you wanted to you have a letter or whatever, you put it on a scroll. Right? <laughs> Roll it out. <laughs> That's right. The codex, though, looks more like our modern day books, right? right? Like it was books. made by, yeah, <laughs> it was made by taking a stack of papyrus or parchment, folding it in half, uh, and then binding everything together. Right, yeah. Right? So it looked like, uh, you know, like our books. So, you know, while the rest of the culture was still primarily using these scrolls, Christians preferred using the codex, right? And so its use was a, was a widely established Christian practice by at least the early 2nd century, right. right? So they were, you know, they were um, pressing uh, the, uh, the uh, what do we want to say? They were pushing the... the um, pushing the reading and copying and formation of book process forward. Right, right. 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 Advancing it. Right, right. yeah. Yeah. So uh, the Codex was likely used because of its ability to hold more than one book so that collections of writing, such as the four Gospels and Paul's letters, could be bound together. And so uh, th- this is where the, the missing books of the 
the New Testament come in. So you have <laughs> things like the the Shepherd of Hermus, and there are there are other codexes that are found that don't that that don't have anything to do with Christianity. But it's not like you know easy printing that we have today. Right. It's well, I've I've got uh, I've, I've I've got the Gospel of John. First uh, Corinthians, I've got Revelation, and uh, I've got uh, a letter from Great Grandma back in the day, and I, I, I want them all bound together because these are all important <laughs> documents to me. Boom, there you go. So yeah. the letter from Grandma is in Scripture, the missing documents of the <laughs> New Testament. So, <laughs> uh, so the upshot uh, for our purposes is that the uh, the dominant use of the Codex, like the Domina Sacra, reveals a Christian scribal culture that is quite unified, organized, and able to forge new literary paths by employing a revolutionary book technology that would eventually come to dominate the entire Greco-Roman world what? and still used today. Who knew? Yeah, so, so a new waves. technology that Christians really kind of pushed forward and and uh, and revolutionized right. what was going right. on. Right? It's 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 easy to transport, it's easy to store. Uh, you get so, more on it. Right. Uh, <laughs> both, you know, both sides of the page. You're 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 just uh, um, uh, folding in the middle rather than the whole thing. Yeah. You're able to reference quicker. So if you're studying it with a group of underground uh, believers or just people meeting in in small rooms, you're able to t- kind of take it with you. And you can put v- a number of the uh, books of the New, New Testament together, you know, yeah. uh, in one place. Yeah, you right? put your finger in John and the finger in Paul and <laughs> compare. Yeah. So that's how we do today. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, so the topic of early Christian scribal infrastructure then is obviously a, a specialized field of research. And uh, we have only provided, uh, our authors here have only provided a response to Erdman's argument. A brief response, right, actually. Right. There's a lot so, more to it. Yeah. Yeah. Nevertheless, the use of multifunctional professional scribes, the Nomia Sacra, and the Codex directs us away from thinking of the early transmission of the Christian text as the Wild West, <laughs> right. right? And more like a developing colony. And, and infrastructure was in place. It had established norms. Um, and uh, the organization was evident. Right? And you can go online today and see these high-quality scans of the early uh, versions of the the um, of different uh, gospels that we see, and you can actually see things like the Nomina Sacra mm. and and the fact that um, uh, there are you know beginnings and ends of books that are more well prepared, that more well preserved than than others because of the use of the codex. So um, the, the, it's it's all it, it's all fit into place here. You know, <laughs> all the all the the, the uh, improvements and all the uh, neat tricks that uh, kind of point even more to this um, this this unification, but also uh, the fact that we have variants too shows that it's not it wasn't this tightly controlled okay this is how you have to copy you have to you know first john the, the first line has to has eight eight words in it and then you move to the next one it's 16 or you know <laughs> whatever uh you know type of numerology you can fit in there um but uh but it wasn't this uh haphazard like you just take it to your fellow meat cleaver and he carves <laughs> it up for you and yeah, dishes yeah. it out no right, this was right. this was intentional yeah essentially it was organized yeah yeah uh, so moving on to our fifth claim then uh, is that uh, Orthodox scribes intentionally change scripture at such a high doctrinal level that it is impossible to know for certain if early scribal corruption has occurred in the transmission. Mm. So, okay. Mm. Yeah. Can we do so, that? Yeah. <laughs> well, so Erdman admits that most changes in the New Testament manuscripts are inconsequential. Right. But a central argument in his book, The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture and in Misquoting Jesus, Mm -hmm. is that there was an intentional and widespread orthodox corruption Mm 
of manuscripts in order to weaken the arguments of those Christian scribes, um, that uh, th those that the Christian scribes viewed as heretics, right? So in other words, Jesus, so we're going to make sure that the heretics have no way and no say in this, and so we're going to change things so that we can deal with these with these heresies, right. is, is the idea here, right? Uh, so to argue for large-scale corruption, Erdman claims he must assert that he can not only be confident that he knows what the changes were, but also why they were made. Yeah. Right. So those are the two things that he has to kind of show if he's going to make this argument. Mm -hmm. Right. He he knows what the changes were, and he knows you know why they were made in terms of what doctrine or whatever they were trying to to, to enhance or right. whatever. Of course, the irony of such confidence in view of his skepticism regarding our inability to recover the wording of the original testament is is um, you know is obvious. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, two questions then are, are in order uh, concerning Ehrman's thesis that this is uh, intentional orthodox corruption uh, was widespread. Yeah. First, how can uh, Ehrman be so sure he knows what the later corruption was if we are not able to get back to what the original in all probability actually said? So there you are. Again, he's trying to have it both ways, right? I don't know what the original is, but I know it was corrupted. Well, how do you know what it was corrupted if you don't know what the original was, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and once again, Ehrman's uh, argument seems to be contradictory. Yeah, exactly. So second, uh, how can Ehrman be so sure he knows what a scribe was thinking? Yeah. And, and and this is done not just with Ehrman, but a lot of skeptical scholars. It's it's uh, the the scholar did this because uh, you know he he couldn't allow uh, this change into it, so he he scribbled it out. <laughs> how do you know that? Yeah, yeah. You just yeah. you just know that it was copied. That the document was copied. <laughs> that's, that's all. That's we all have. You know. Yeah, yeah. Read between the lines. Yeah. Um, and so we should say here that, that uh, Ehrman is popularizing what uh, what was kind of thought up in, in the 30s, 40s era by, by the Walter Bauer, mm. the Bauer hypothesis. So mm -hmm. so um, uh, Ehrman's uh, readily admit that he's a believer in this uh, Bauer hypothesis. And um, once we get done with this section, I'll, I'll give you a book to, to read about that. Yeah. So, you know, clearly all we have is the, the texts that were copied, right? But for Ehrman, this is apparently enough to consistently claim that he knows what the scriptures, uh, the scribes who copied these texts what they were thinking. Right? Ehrman completely lacks confidence in determining the original wording, but has abundant confidence in his ability to decipher the thoughts of scribes about whom he doesn't even know. Right? So they were trying to do this. Well, how do you know that? Yeah. Right? Even if Ehrman were correct in all of his examples of widespread orthodox tampering with the text, which is unlikely, uh, he concludes, or his conclusions would have little impact on the larger question of our ability to recover the original words, right? Since his argument depends on being able to locate the early readings, right? right? Because you can't know that they were changed unless you know what they were like. Right, right. right. If there was a God before God, we'd want to worship him, right? Yeah. So if there was a text before the text, let's go seek that one out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so uh, uh, Michael J. Kruger and I, I believe uh, Kostenberger wrote uh, jointly The uh, Heresy of Orthodox, uh, which uh, presents a, a, a well-laid-out Bauer hypothesis uh, something that, that Ehrman is popularizing here and takes it to task. I yeah, mean, they really yeah. do a really good job of it's of, yeah. of, of, su of supporting the case against it. Mm. And so um, if, if you're um, uh, interested in, in reading that, I, I would definitely uh, recommend that book. And uh, 
and even Reed Bowers because uh, they, they do they do such a good job of presenting it. And M- Michael Kruger is always fair with his subject and 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 calling out both the good and the bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's uh, his writings are, are uh, why I keep recommending it because he's it's <laughs> it's so they're so good. Uh, and so our final claim here of uh, of the corruption of the biblical manuscripts is it is useless to say uh, the Bible is the inspired word of God when we don't have the original words. We don't have the original words, so it's not the inspired word of God. Right. Here's the inerrant word of God. Jesus. You can trust it. Uh, you can be confident. Uh, your salvation is based on it. Oh, but we don't we don't have the original manuscripts. So yeah, we don't have yeah the original words. Yeah. Yeah. So no scholar claims that we have the original manuscripts, right? The so-called biblical autographs is what they're called, right, of the New Testament. However, acknowledging that we no longer have the autographs is different from saying we no longer have the words of the original manuscripts, right? right? Uh, It's also different from arguing that there never was an original uh, that we can pursue. So just because we don't have the original doesn't mean we can't work back, right? to determine uh, what was said. And given how many copies we have, you know, that's what we do. Mm -hmm. That's the process that we use, right? We work back to determine what was said. Right. Yeah, and uh, I would highly again uh, recommend uh, viewing Bart Ehrman's debates on this, especially the one with James White, where they they talk about whatever changes there are. And then um, this as well is, are, are we confident in knowing what the original manuscripts say? There's a case to be made that, yes, we do. So for Ehrman to prove we no longer have the words of the original, he would have to show that none of the variants in the available manuscript, a.k.a. the, the copies, yeah. uh, go back to the original. He'd have to say that this entered into to the manuscript at some time, somehow, and continued on, but it wasn't in the original. Yeah. Again, yeah, again that's a tough claim to make. Yeah. Right? yeah. Er- Ehrman is I mean, in terms of not, have, not knowing what the original, if you're claiming you don't know what the original is, then it's pretty tough to yeah. claim that this got snuck in. It would have to say something like, uh, and, and Jesus wrote on a, a, a Model T Ford. So you go, okay, well, the Model T Ford wasn't until much, much later. Yeah. And so there you could you could say that. You, you'd have to bring in some anachronistic thing that comes in, into play. And, and that's really the only leeway that I can kind of give them for that. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, Ehrman has demonstrated that particular manuscripts have been altered at certain points, but he has nowhere demonstrated that among the thousands of manuscripts available to scholars today, the original words have utterly vanished. Mm. Mm. And again, uh, scholars regularly admit that, uh, that, that copies have miscopied words, uh, changes in, in spelling, d- different ways to say things in the Greek, but it's really hard to be able to put your finger on a change that is completely taken out and devoid from history. Yeah. Uh, how would you know? Right, right. Well, yeah, and, and of course, that's part of the, you know, the critical uh, evaluation of the text, right? And that's how we get back to that. But if you're claiming that you can't know, right. then that's, that's a that, positive yeah, claim that you're right, making. Right, then that's the issue here, right? right? Erdman hardly makes an attempt to demonstrate uh, that we don't have the original words. Instead, he opts to make his argument by way of a theological claim, right? So this isn't a evidential claim in terms of looking at what we have. It's a theological claim, right? So what's the claim? Well, his argument can be broken down into our our authors tell us three propositions, Mm -hmm. right? If God had inspired the New Testament autographs, he would have either provided us with the originals or prevented any corruption in the transmission, 
inspired if they were inspired. The New Testament autographs no longer exist and the available manuscripts are corrupted. Therefore, God did not inspire the New Testament autographs. There's a neat, clean argument that, uh, that he's put together. Yeah. But notice, it's based not necessarily on looking at what we have per se, I mean, to a certain extent, but it's a theological argument about what God could or did do, mm-hmm. or what he should have done, right. maybe. And so it isn't, doesn't this seem like it's trading on the fact of, uh, of, of people not knowing the transmission of, of, the, of, the, of the New Testament, how it came to be? I mean, this seems to be uh, a, a just challenging those who, who, who believe that, well, you know, John wrote John, and then it just continued to be copied perfectly until today. And so we do have copies of it, but you know, it's pretty much the same thing. And that's kind of what the case is, but <laughs> here he's then saying, um, you know, Oh, well, you know, uh, that, that, that first John passage about the, the Trinity, that's not there. Like, okay. But my Bible has a note about that too. Yeah, so, yeah. so it seems like people knew about it. Yeah. People who published the Bible knew about it. <laughs> hmm, okay. <laughs> so, however, why should uh, one believe uh, position one? And pos- uh, position one is, if God uh, had inspired the New Testament autographs, he would have either provided us with the original or prevented any corruption of the, the, uh, the autograph or of, of the, uh, the copies. Yeah. So, so why should we believe that? Uh, well, uh, Ehrman <laughs> thinks this is how God would have inspired the New Testament autographs, or at least this is how Ehrman would have done oh, it. Oh, okay. If right. I were God. So, yeah, yeah. If I were doing this, you know, if it was up to me, this is the way I would yeah. do it. God didn't do it that way, therefore right. we don't have the right. And, and it's all wrong. Right. Dawkins, if I were God, I wouldn't have made the the giraffe's neck like this, therefore no God exists. <laughs> but the Bible does not teach the pos- that Proposition 1 is true, nor does it logically follow. We are aware of no ancient Christian doctrine that claim Position 1, the Proposition seems logical to Ehrman, but seeming logical is not the same as being logical. So again, uh, if God inspired the New Testament autographs, you couldn't change either the originals or prevent the corruption of the transmission. And so, what would what what would that mean? So, so okay, we we have the autographs, and so you have them encased because uh, uh, Christians view these as important. They should be important. They tell us how to be preserved. So, if you're wanting to study them as a scientist, you try to try to cut a piece of paper away. You wouldn't be able to do it. That's right. Uh, uh, terrorists Someone, would come in and throw yeah. a grenade in, and it, uh, everything else would be destroyed, but not, not the text. Right. That's right. Or well, you try to copy it, and, of course, your hand would be forced to do exactly right. what right. it says. Couldn't, could God do that? <laughs> Absolutely. Probably, yeah. Absolutely he could. Yeah. But is that how God operated the text in history? No, that's not that's not what we say. Again, God works with and through people, right? Right. And so, uh, so He uses us to accomplish what He wants to accomplish, and sometimes that's kind of messy. And right? continues from the Old Testament. Yeah. So, Erdman causes confusion by not clearly distinguishing. Notice this between the original autographs, right, the the manuscripts, and the original words. Right. They, right? they are different because can, if if you can trace from the different copies the original words, yes, you don't have the physical. Copies that John and yeah, Luke the, wrote. The material, you know, right. uh, autographs, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that kind right. of stuff, right? Yeah. But, you know, if, if I said, uh, you know, I was once 12 years old, and you wrote down, I was once 12 years old, Patrick, uh, you have my original words, but you don't have the recording, the, the original recording of me, so therefore we have to throw it out. You, mm. can't, you can't use that <laughs> copy. Yeah, yeah. Christians believe that the words written in the original autographs were inspired not the material entity, right, that they were written on, the papyrus or the parchment, right? 
In other words, we don't need the original manuscripts in order to have the original words. Right. Just like right. how we don't today. Yeah. So Ehrman has produced little to no evidence that we no longer have the original words in the manuscripts available to us today. In the end, he relies on this theological ar argument insisting on how God would have inspired the New Testament autographs if he had, in fact, done so, uh, something Ehrman himself denies. Claiming inspiration to be false because if I were running things, I would have done things differently is a far cry from the sound textual and theological arguments. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, not a good argument. Right. Yeah. All right, so where are we? Where are we here at the end of this chapter? Well, so uh, they, they this last section they entitled "The Dangerous in the Ditches," right? Yeah. Uh, absolute certainty, or and and absolute despair, right? Right. So we return to the question they tell us that was posed at the beginning of this chapter: How much evidence would be enough for Erdman to trust the reliability of the New Testament? How much evidence, right? Ehrman has admitted that the Bible has the best manuscript evidence of any ancient book, but alas, this isn't enough for him. Yeah. Right? Ehrman's skeptical conclusions are the result of an underlying disposition of doubt rather than reasonable conclusions drawn from the actual evidence. Right. So Ehrman asks, how can we decide uh, what anybody in the ancient world said? And answers his own question by concluding, we can't. Wow. So we can never know what history, what history was. We yeah. never know what they said, what anybody said. Uh, up until, what, 1950, 1960, the invention of the Xerox. That's, <laughs> that's when maybe you can start, maybe. Yeah. But, uh, you know, four scores and seven years ago, we, we can't know that Lincoln <laughs> ever said that or anybody said that. Unless we have the original documents, we can't know, right, is what the claim yeah. is here. And, and even then, you have to trust that those documents are accurate that's and true. Right. <laughs> However, despite Ehrman's uh, uh, evident skepticism, when turning to task of writing about Jesus in the early church, Ehrman himself assumes the sufficiency, sufficient certainty of the New Testament. No. He talks about no. things that Jesus would have done and <laughs> thought and the, the life that was back then. Yeah, really? Yeah. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> Egg on face. <laughs> uh, recently, Ehrman has written a book called Did Jesus Exist? Where he argues against a small group called mysticists uh, that Jesus did, in fact, exist. Oh, and what's the proof of that? Where does he get his material oh, from? Oh, man. Uh, so throughout the book, Ehrman rightly defends the histor historical existence of Jesus, but his arguments are based on the assumption that we can actually know what the New Testament authors are. Oh, oh man. Wow. Well, maybe not the salvation stuff, but we know that Jesus <laughs> exists. Right. So right. we're, we're confident and, in that. And we, and we know based on, on what the New Testament has to say. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I think Jesus was just added later. There, there was no Jesus. He reconstructs uh, a historical Jesus using primarily the words of the New Testament Gospels. Wow. So I can't trust it. I don't know if it's true. Uh, I don't, you know, I think it's all been changed. It's been corrupt. But if I want to defend the fact that Jesus did exist, I go to the New Testament to show that is, right, what, is right. what we see here, right? Or, or, that is, that's, yeah. uh, you know, what do you call that? Hypocritical? I don't know exactly what you yeah. call that, right? Uh, you know, if, if, if you can't do it for that you can't do it for uh any, any caesar uh, and, and you know rome exists sure the Colosseum's there but you can never know what happened there you just know a building exists because it's yeah. still there so <laughs> what does that what does that mean 
Uh, so Ehrman uh, would not, not be able to make such an argument if he did not trust, at least in a general and significant way, the transmission of the New Testament. Exactly. You know, if, if, it's, yeah. if it's so outlandish, so, uh, you know, the, the, I mean, the perfect example is the Gnostics. The Gnostics come in very early. Um, uh, um, uh, Michael Kruger also has a book about uh, Christianity in the second century. And, uh, and the Gnostics come in, and one of their main claims, it's kind of, uh, they're, they're, they're all over the place uh, theologically, but uh, a, a majority of, or a, a, a big section of the claims is that Jesus didn't exist at all. Like, like he, he existed as kind of a, a vapor. Mm. He was there in spirit form, but not body. And so first John kind of, you kind of see this proto-gnostic response. Why, why is John telling us in first John here, uh, you know, that, that we saw, we touched, uh, he's, he seems very concerned with the, the physicality of Christ mm. of the mm. incarnation. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, if, if the Gnostics are right, if, if, if uh, you know, the, the, the evil orthodoxy comes by and says, no, no, we, we, we can't have a, a, a mystical Jesus who exists in this vapor form. Jesus physically existed, but we're going to wipe out everything. Yeah. So shouldn't Ehrman say, well, we don't know if he like really existed or if he's just this apparition. So maybe he's an alien projected version of Of course, that's something. what the folks that he was arguing against, that's what they were saying that he really didn't. Right, right, right. right. And so, yeah, so he uses the New Testament to prove his case that Jesus existed, even right. though so, but he why claims not he believes that the New Testament is so corrupt that we don't even know what it says. Right. Right. You can't, again, you can't have it both ways, right? One of Erdman's central points in misquoting Jesus is that scribes, at times, intentionally change the text, right? Ehrman can make such an argument only by assuming that he can know with some degree of confidence what the original text actually said, right? Otherwise, how do you know they intentionally changed it? Yeah, right? and intentionally. I mean, th- th- there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of proof that you have to do for intentional. Yeah. It's one thing to say, oh, you know, uh, th- this line was taken out on, on, on the copying way and it just continued on and we just... It's lost in the history right, of, of right. the vapor. Uh, but it's another thing to say, you know, uh, twirl the mustache and cross it out. I blotted it out from God's word. Those are two drastic claims. Yeah. So, so on the one hand, it seems that Erdman um, uh, has more confidence in the transmission of the text than uh, it sometimes appears. Right. But yet on the other hand, Erdman often still insists on taking an all or nothing approach. So one must either be absolutely certain or absolutely cynical about the reliability of transmission of the New Testament, right? And so, again, you know, you can't have it both ways. Right. Right? So, okay, we, we, we probably can uh, be a little bit more confident that the biblical manuscripts aren't corrupt, and there's a, a lot of good uh, internal and external evidence for that. Uh, again, much, much more can be said. Uh, I'm sure there are responses to our responses. Uh, continue your reading and understand uh, exactly how God operated within the scope of humanity and history in general. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, continuing on, uh, next time will be Chapter 4. Uh, we, we, we mentioned it already, uh, the Bauer Hypothesis. And so here uh, the, the, the question is, uh, were there many Christianities? Mm. And so uh, I'm, I'm just going to tell you now that the reference would be to uh, heresy of orthodoxy. And uh, um, I'm, that'll, that'll come up because uh, <laughs> the Bauer Hypothesis uh, should kind of be out of our minds or, uh, okay. f- from that. I mean, it's, it's so well laid out. I, I highly recommend that book. And by the way, the, the claims that are addressed here are eight of them. So what does that tell you? That tells you that this is an important um, uh, subject for, for Erdman because right. he's really dug into this and made a lot of claims about right. this, yeah. right? Yeah. So we'll take a look at that next time. Right. So thanks yeah. for joining us this time. See you next time. See you next time.